Hey, it's future edit Ollie coming in for a quick warning before this episode officially starts. Just warning you while I was editing, I noticed that there is some weird feedback in certain parts of this episode that I really couldn't figure out where they were coming from. It's still perfectly listenable. It's just kind of annoying in some places. And I just wanted to give you a heads up before we get started. So hope you still enjoy. And I we're going to try and figure that out before our next recording session. Welcome to A Wild Mystery Podcast Appears, where us dumb friends will be discussing mysteries, histories, and occasionally conspiracies. I'm your host, Ollie. And I'm your host, Belle. Today we're going to be discussing some sensitive topics regarding anti-Semitism, brief mentions of the Holocaust, child murder, possibly sexual assault, and discussions of death and body handling. If any of these topics are disturbing to you, we recommend that you check out our other episodes coming soon. I also want to apologize for any incorrect pronunciations. I am trying pretty hard, but I didn't grow up Jewish, so... So Chaim Weiss was born in 1971 in Staten Island, New York. I couldn't find his exact date of birth because I don't think it's out there. Uh, but you know, 1971. Known. Yeah, yeah, not widely known, probably. And um, I think it's close to the end of the year. Uh, I think it's probably in November, <laughs> but that is like the best that I could guess. His family is Orthodox Jewish, and he was the oldest of three siblings. His grandfather was a Holocaust survivor, and his father, Anton, who is an important part of the story, was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany after World War II. Later in Anton's life, he immigrated to America. Anton was a successful diamond merchant, which is cool. Yeah, right on. I, Go, I, dude. Yeah, I'd never heard of that <laughs> as a job, so, like, you never heard of that sweet. as a job? No, <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um... Chaim was less than a month from his 16th birthday, and he was in 11th grade at Torah High School in Long Island, New York. So Torah High School is a yeshiva, uh, which is a school dedicated to helping to maintain the traditions of Orthodox Judaism by emphasizing the principles of the religion. Torah High School is a private all-boys boarding school with a dorm that is separate from the school building, but we'll get more into that in a bit. Chaim had been attending Torah High School since he entered ninth grade and was undoubtedly one of the most popular boys in the school. He was at the top of his class and he was described as friendly, well-behaved, and sensible with lots of friends. All-around good kid, sounds yeah. like. Anton has described his son as loving, joyous, and bright. He was funny, he was smart, he was just a great kid, and Anton was really proud of him. In fact, a direct quote from Anton is that he was proud to have him as a son. I felt like he was a gift to us. Chaim was seemingly universally loved by his teachers and fellow students. He was such a good student that he was uh, one of only two students that year who were given their own private rooms in the dorm. And remember, he's only in 11th grade, so he's not even a senior. <laughs> well, no, but even that, I mean, especially in, well, so 1917, that puts it right around... 1971, I think. Yeah, 1971. Oh, 1971. Oh, I read Dyslexia. that wrong. <laughs> Ooh, fun. Well, I mean, okay, so it's 1971. He's 16, so that puts it at 1987 that he's in school. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, no matter what, that's a pretty yeah, decent spent... luxury, especially for a private school. Yeah. That's, pretty, that's really impressive. Good for him. Yeah. 
He was known as a happy, kind kid with no problems bigger than, quote, normal teenage drama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Opinions on that. Yeah. <laughs> normal so, teen- normal well, teenage drama. And again. Can be very. Can be a lot. Well, it's real. You know, but, it's not just. It's not just lessened by the fact that they're teenagers. Yeah. But, you know, most student. Most kids with normal teenage drama don't end up murdered. Which this I guess is also true. <laughs> I think is what his is father what was the trying the implication to... of the statement. I think that quote came from his dad, but I'm not totally sure. <laughs> yeah. um, this was normal teenage drama for a very devout Orthodox Jewish culture. So it wasn't like he's not going out and doing drugs and having sex and stuff. You know, he's not yeah. drinking underage, which is, I think. I think it's pretty commonplace at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so. And it's still pretty commonplace. Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, normal teenage drama in that context. Yeah. <laughs> so, the dorm building at Torah High School, um, I think still to this day, but at least in 1986, was located three bo- blocks east from the school building and three blocks north from Long Beach. That's a decent walk. Yeah. But it looked... Um, I walked the quote unquote walked the route on Google Maps and it looks like a mostly residential area, pretty quiet. About one to two blocks from any area that really looked at all busy. Hmm. Most of the students, if not all, would walk between the buildings as they needed. So like, you know, beginning hmm. and ending of the school day. Yeah. There was like the busiest part of that walk as I was making it was there was a uh kind of like a highway, you know, sort of two lanes on either side of a uh what's the middle bit called a, <laughs> a median <medium>? yeah <laughs> like two lanes on either side of a median and that was like the busiest street Part that he would have had to cross okay. yeah <laughs> not that how busy it is actually matters to this case at all but no but i mean it, it sets the tone it sets, yeah it sets the it's story. a the school building and the dorm building are both located in very residential areas okay the dorm housed about 40 students in rooms of two to three, besides Hyam and the other student who were staying in their own rooms. I don't believe there were any teachers staying in the dorms, but there may have been a dorm leader. That's how he was described as by other students of the time, but I'm not for sure that he was living there. Yeah. <laughs> um... Well, I mean, they. I would imagine that they had to have some some sort of like RA situation because can't just have yeah. I'm sure you can't just ninth have... to twelfth grade boys. Yeah. You know, boys will be boys and all that. Especially yeah, whew, that just does not sound like a good time. <laughs> yeah. Um. It also. Uh. I have heard it mentioned. This just a good time to mention this. Maybe there were a couple of times that it was mentioned that all the kids at the school were rabbinical students that they were all studying to become rabbis. I could not find in any of the specific, I mean, this was, it was a high school, it wasn't a college. Right. So, um, I, and I also, about the school, I think the school is getting confused with another college that is actually a rabbinical college in Long Island that mm-hmm. I think is pretty close. Okay. Um, so I don't believe that is true, <laughs> but this was an Orthodox Jewish school. Haim's room was on the third floor which I'm pretty sure is the top floor, and he had a decent-sized window on one wall. There's um, also a quick mention. This building was located pretty far from either of the buildings on either side, and it had, like, it was... It's like a 
brown brick building, like just no assassin's walls. creed no no, no parkouring like the nobody buildings. nobody is parkouring <laughs> unless you're goddamn superman you're not like <laughs> so october 31st halloween in 1986 was a friday Hayam walked from his dorm to the school building attended classes as normal and then he left with his friends to attend services after which they returned to the dorm now there are going to be two places in this case where i'm going to stop and talk about um orthodox judaism and the culture and community surrounding that Mm. especially like traditions Mm -hmm. and this is the first one um i promise it is more important than frankly it should have been (laughs) but okay uh this is about the sabbath which in hebrew is called the shabbat which mm-hmm. I'm going to call the Sabbath because I don't know that I'm pronouncing it right. <laughs> okay. So the Sabbath in Judaism begins at sunset every Friday and ends after dark on Saturday night. There are a lot of different ways that Jewish people and communities observe the Sabbath. So keep that in mind that I'm generalizing in a whole lot of ways. Sabbath is kind of considered like a gift from God a day where observers take time to rest. There are a lot of aspects to Sabbath, but I'm really going to cover the one aspect that relates to this case because it's a pretty big topic otherwise. Um, So during Sabbath, the Torah prohibits... I apologize in advance. (laughs) The Torah prohibits melacha, which is usually incorrectly translated as work, thus leading to a lot of the current misunderstandings of Sabbath, more accurately describes work that's either creative or exercises control over one's environment. For example, turning light on or off. So before Sabbath begins, certain lights are turned on that will remain on throughout the observance, and certain things like refrigerator lights are removed or disabled, so they don't turn on when the fridge is opened, but you can still open the fridge, you know? Uh, Jewish people who observe Sabbath and follow the restrictions outlined by the Mishnah, which is a book that's kind of where people turn for Jewish law. People who observe those restrictions are called, are they're referred to as observant. And due to some of the details in this case, and the fact that by all accounts, all these students were very devout, and I've heard some sources that they were even, most of them studying to become rabbis, I think it's safe to assume that they were all probably observant. At least Chaim sounded like he was observant by yeah. the way that he was behaving. Yeah. There are 39 categories of activities that are restricted in the Mishnah. I've read through them, and most of them are things like shearing, building, and plowing, which in today's time, most people can probably avoid for a day pretty easily. Mm-hmm. But then there are a couple of things that would be concerned, such as writing or erasing two letters, transporting an object in the public domain, which is in public, mm-hmm. um, and tying or untying things, like shoelaces. I'm kind of stuck on the erasing two letters part. This is like, like, or, I think it's just like the idea that I was getting is that like, I mean, I know this isn't necessarily like important to the case, but I'm just it like, actually I'm, is. oh, is but, it? Yeah. Is it? Oh, it is. okay. Interesting. But, um, the, like the idea that I got from it was like, you could write or erase one letter, but mm-hmm. you couldn't, if, like if it was going past that, you couldn't. Okay. So. I can respect that. Um, and then some, a lot of these things actually have been translated throughout the centuries. For example, 
The missionary writes specifically not to light or extinguish a fire, but that's kind of been translated to encompass turning on or off a light because that's effectively what it had been amounted to at the time that the Mishnah was written. Yeah. Uh, it's also important to note at this point two other things as they relate to these restrictions. These restrictions. One of them is that if you are observing them, you have to consider the things that relate to them and that may result in acting one out. Mm-hmm. So some observant Jewish people are so careful about the restrictions that they won't even touch a pencil unless it's necessary, like to move it off a mm-hmm. Bible. Yeah. Um, or they won't add water to a vase with flowers. But then it wouldn't be a problem to, like, for example, walk on grass, which might end up cutting some of the blades and thus constitute reaping. But again, it's not an issue because you would be insane to say that somebody was reaping the fields because they were walking the grass, you know? Yeah. So as long as um, one of these restrictions isn't included in your intentions or the obvious outcomes of inaction, you are okay to perform said action, according to my research. (laughs) Yeah. And then the second thing that we have to consider is that even the most strict followers of these restrictions are allowed and even encouraged to break as many as they need if it is to save a life. The best example of this is that observant Jewish people wouldn't usually donate blood or have it drawn on the Sabbath, but if someone was dying and needed their blood, it like wouldn't even be a question because from what I've read, any attempt at all to save or preserve a life is the best thing you can do in Jewish belief. I think that's one thing that I've like always really like respected about um, Judaism is because it's like, yes, you know, we you know, we do, you know, have our beliefs and the beliefs and these things that we do. Um, but at the end of the day, like, helping people, like, live is, like, a very important belief. And I would just always really respect yeah. them for that. There are a lot of things when I was researching this that, like, I really respect about Jewish. Yeah. Like, Judaism. So... Back to the case. <laughs> On Friday, the 31st of October, 1986, because it was the Sabbath, the hallway lights in the dorm were intentionally left on because students couldn't turn the lights in their room on or off. So assuming they left the lights off in their room so they could sleep later, if they wanted to read, they could just come out into the hallway. Right. I was going to say read or write, but they couldn't write. <laughs> um, so this was especially concept common after sunset which is when two of his fellow students saw Chaim reading in the hallway about two hours after the service. Between 12.45 and 1 a.m., Chaim was seen returning to his room, presumably to go to bed. Which, that's a pretty pretty good estimate for the time, yeah. I have to say. Yeah, it was a 15-minute window. That yeah, that's is, good. That is very accurate. And especially because, uh, considering the time, they didn't have cell phones. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So, I do not know if the doors of the like of the students rooms had locks um the school is still open and the dorm is still in use so i think because of that it's especially tough to find information because i feel like that would be a pretty big security issue yeah, to like have likely, all that information it had been updated since then so probably, even if yeah. there weren't there probably are now. yeah um but even if there were locks on the doors um it doesn't seem like they were regularly locked because at some point during the night Another student on the third floor heard their door open and then shut again. At the time, he assumed it was his roommate, but then later wondered if it could have been somebody looking for Haim's room. And then, just a really quick note here, um, 
I do not believe locking or unlocking a door would be prohibited on the Sabbath because I can't find anywhere that says it would be. And I also think that it would probably be mentioned because I know for me, it would be a big hassle if I couldn't lock my door. <laughs> so, well, well, I think that would kind of almost fall into the category of like preserving a life because it's like, yeah, logically speaking, if you don't lock your door. I mean, in this case, it could have preserved a life. So, yes. <laughs> Although I don't, we'll get into that. But <laughs> it, it's yet to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> so the next morning, which is Saturday, November 1st, Hayam doesn't show up to his morning prayers. And this was really, really weird for him, especially on Sabbath, where the morning prayers are really important from what I've read. Mm -hmm. So as such, the dorm counselor went to check on him between 7.30 and 8 a.m. This dorm counselor was an adult. Um, and I think probably closer to 7.30, which you'll see why later. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether or not this person lived in the dorm, but it is stated that they assumed time had overslept. I also, I did worth mentioning i don't know like there was conflicting information on whether or not an observant jewish person could set an alarm that would go off on sabbath basically you could not set it on sabbath you know what i mean like you could not like program you it you could on the sabbath <laughs> right but like you could have like an existing alarm yeah that would go off on the sabbath right and you could turn it off because not doing so would cause anguish for others which is pretty good yeah <laughs> Um, I don't think that he had an alarm set because it was not stated that anything was going off. Uh, but back to timeline, when the counselor goes up to what they assume is to wake up Hyam, they instead find his dead body in a pool of blood on his bedroom floor. According to the sources I saw, the window in his room was also open, and some sources say there was a memorial candle burning burning in his room at the time but based on how the investigators talked about this case i actually don't think that's true hmm. so the police obviously are called immediately um there was one of the students explained the dorm counselor running downstairs and saying like everybody out we need to go call the police and detective don daly who had 25 years of experience with the nassau county police department arrived at about 8 a.m and that's why I believe it was probably closer to 7.30 because that's a really tight window. Unless there was literally a police station, like, next door. Yeah, and he's a... Remember, this is when the primary detective on the case shows up. Right. Which is, like, not not like the beat cop that was parked down the corner, you know? No, yeah, this is, like, like <laughs> lead investigator. Yeah. And Detective Don Lee was the lead investigator. Right. I right, should right. specify. Yeah, I think. So... And, of course, you know, you have to imagine there's a lot of panic. Nobody has a cell phone. Mm -hmm. So, at the very least, they probably had to go downstairs to get a phone. But there could have just not even been a phone in the dorm. Because, again, I don't know if there were adults that yeah. lived in the dorm. I don't know how often the kids <laughs> use the phone, you know. Mm -hmm. They're probably, you know, in hindsight, there probably was a phone in the dorm building. Probably. Especially because they didn't have cell phones, you know. Yeah. So, how else are they going to contact their family? Right. Um, but Hyam's autopsy report is not public, so I have seen some inconsistent information, but what I could find was that his skull was fractured and his cause of death was a single blow with an axe or hatchet that severed his spinal column. Oh my god. Already rough, yeah. So, some sources say he was hit with the weapon two or three times, but it is possible it could have just been the once. Hmm. And I, I mean... also... 
Oh, I was just going to say, go for it. I mean, just just based on that sentence alone, I mean, it sounds like there was at least two strikes because you, you figure like with an axe, not all not all axes are double edged. And so mm-hmm. a lot of them do have a blunt part. So, I mean, I hate to talk about it in this way, yeah. but it's like the first blow was more than likely to incapacitate. And then we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> Oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is kind of a rough one. This is this is the issue. Is I watch so many that where I'm yeah. like, I'm like, let me just psychoanalyze this really so, quick. So, um, I also the unsolved mysteries episode on this case, which does have misinformation, so you can't believe everything. But um, they did say that it was just one strike to the base of his skull that both fractured his skull and severed his spinal cord. So it literally, it could have been that he was literally only hit once. Mm. But Hmm. the murder weapon was never found. But because of the size of the wounds, police believe it was most likely a hatchet. The injuries um, seem like both bludgeoning and stabbing wounds, which is a combination that's consistent with either an axe or a hatchet. But based on the size, it's most likely it was a hatchet. And then a few hours... After Heim's body was found, Nassau County Police found Anton Weiss, his father, at a bar mitzvah in Bell Harbor, Queens. Anton later said that they told him Heim was injured, but I suspect that that was probably just to get him somewhere more private where they could tell him what had actually happened. Because, you know, a bar Uh, mitzvah, that's a big big deal in Jewish culture. Yeah, and I mean, on top of that, I mean, the the way that he was... Murdered yeah. is incredibly violent, so you don't want to just drop that on somebody. Yeah, and Anton obviously was devastated um, and fully cooperated and supported the investigation. To this day, he's really still acting as Heim's loudest voice. I honestly, based on the way that he behaves during interviews, I think he's uncomfortable with them, and I really don't blame him, especially having seen the way that the, me- the media behaves towards him especially in press conferences um how do they treat him it was the one press conference i watched like it seemed like they wanted to ask him questions but they didn't know who he was because they asked if he could come out and talk to him after he had already come out and talked to them so like (laughs) it's a weird situation Mm. like yeah the i it's it's the I'm doing the investigate or I'm doing investigative reporting. Yeah. But only because it's a popular story, not because we actually Mm -hmm. care about what happened. Well, and I mean, if you think about this from the media's perspective, not only is this a horrifying murder, which would already get views, it is already, it is also a, um, a community that I feel like the media has a lot of fascination towards. So I would agree with that statement. Yeah. So I think it's this combination of things that the media really wants to talk about and yeah. they're not they don't want to they don't want to be respectful of, of the his situation privacy. or his yeah. culture and religion. And he like his his mom and his siblings uh they've never I've never seen any interviews with them. So yeah. I think Anton was doing a lot of this to Yeah. Like, like kind of shield them family, yeah. yeah and and to get justice for Hyam. absolutely but he you know he really wants to give Hyam justice and i just think he's being very strong in this situation i have a lot of admiration for him which i mean you know 
it sucks. This whole situation sucks. Yeah, but yeah. he's doing he's doing he's a doing lot the best for Hyam. Yeah. And back at the crime scene, Detective Daly quickly realizes that this was going to be a unique investigation. There isn't any evidence of a struggle, robbery, or a sexual assault, and there's blood on Hyam's bed, which leads inve investigators to speculate that he was killed in his sleep. I don't know how Hyam slept, like if he slept on his stomach or his back, yeah. but I think if he slept on his stomach, that's probably an even stronger theory. Yeah. Judging by the blood pattern, investigators were able to come to the conclusion that Hyam's body was moved twice once from the bed onto the floor and then again more into the middle of the floor two feet from where it had first been moved to there were no footprints in the blood which has led many people to believe that he was dragged by his feet especially because with the head wounds he would have been bleeding a lot so the killer if they weren't covered in blood they probably didn't spend a lot of time near his head yeah I think <coughs> it's a fair assumption and uh, this is also a good place to mention probably that no students ever reported hearing any yelling, thumping, banging, crashing, or anything. Nothing was reported beyond that one student who saw him go to bed at the, or, or no, 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 sorry, the, the door. The, yeah, yeah, the, the guy door. who's, or the student whose door opened open. and closed. Yeah. Right. So now it is time to delve into our second and final deep dive into Jewish culture. This time about the treatment of the body between death and burial. I try not to get too into the nitty gritty of like the stuff that might skeeze people out. But you know, it is what it is. And it is important. Uh, clearly, the traditional Orthodox Jewish death practices, they tend to assume that the deceased person died of natural causes or really other reasons that give you time for planning. So before a person dies, they usually have one last confession. Their family will be with them. A prayer would be recited upon their death and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, obviously, a lot of this stuff is different between different communities and different families. So again, I'm generalizing, but this is a lot of the stuff that I found specifically, of course, that applies to the case. Because otherwise, again, it is a pretty big topic. I found personally a lot of this stuff really comforting. <laughs> It sounded very comforting, but it then it's also very heartbreaking when you think about Hyam, because a mm -hmm. lot of it he didn't get. Yeah. So <clears throat> leading up to a person's death, it's kind of expected in Orthodox Judaism that no one will leave the presence of the dying person unless they have to. For example, if you're sick or I also saw it mentioned, if um, your emotions are just uncontrollable. Feel that? Yeah. <laughs> After death, the deceased's eyes and mouth are closed, preferably by direct relatives, and then their face is covered with a sheet. Um, less commonly, there's a custom in some communities that involves moving the body to the floor about 20 minutes after their passing. More commonly, communities tend to move the body so that the feet are towards the doorway, and then refrain from touching it unless it's considered necessary to kind of make the, their position more comfortable candle is lit by the deceased's head mirrors are covered and i saw some sources mentioning that a window should be opened even if only for a second if the weather is really bad but um i didn't find this in all sources so i don't know how common it is but um the fact that it is mentioned in any sources makes me think it is practiced by some mm -hmm. communities so there are expectations about your behavior when you're in the room with the deceased at this time again 
you wouldn't touch them unless it's necessary um necessary for the deceased i should mm -hmm. specify not for you it's expected you don't talk about anything unless it's about them or the funeral and you should avoid saying anything negative about them even if it's objectively true the really big things in this tradition is that from the moment until from the moment of death until burial the body should not be left alone someone called a shomer or watcher is appointed um if possible a direct family member but it can be anybody it can be you know appointed by the church if need be they're expected to be awake at all times and reciting or and to recite psalms I saw in some sources that there is a belief in Judaism that the spirit stays around the body for a few days after death and the presence of the Shomer is meant to offer comfort. Um, mm -hmm. But I didn't see that in all sources, of course. Um, and it's worth noting that the body will usually be dressed in a coffin for most of this time. So they're not, you know, just in the room with the body, just yeah. out. Um, there are traditions against unnecessary autopsies or embalming. Uh, but an autopsy, I believe, was performed in Haim's case because it would have been necessary to provide evidence. Um, I also want to directly read an excerpt from the website I got the majority of this information from, Shabbat.org. So number 12 on their list, titled Initial Care of the Deceased, reads, If the death occurs on the Sabbath, care should be taken not to light the candles near the deceased. Only the most minimal arrangements may be made on the Sabbath, and these only out of respect for the dead. The dead may not be moved on the Sabbath by Jew or Gentile, which means a non-Jewish person. A watcher should be present during the Sabbath. It should also be noted um, that some of these customs are listed as not applicable in certain settings like hospitals, and some can be modified or have exceptions for certain situations. I'm actually not totally sure that Heim's body was removed from the room on the day it was found, I think it's probably safe to assume it was uh, mainly because I think it would be weirder to American media if it wasn't. So it probably would have been mentioned. Yeah, I <clears throat> I feel like that probably would have caused more of an uproar in media presence than what was originally given to, yeah. to him. And again, there really wasn't a lot of media coverage at all. Yeah. So, Belle, before we continue, uh, after going through those customs and beliefs, is there anything about the way Haim's body was found that stands out to you? I mean, you know, moving him to the floor, the window. I mean, and whether or not the candle thing was true, true or not, that, you know, that was mentioned as well. I mean, you know, all of those things are pretty prevalent to that. But, you know, there hasn't been a lot of information made about, you know, like, I don't know if there was any police sketches done of the scene or scene sketches done at the time. Yeah, I don't know either. Because I'm, because obviously it makes it sound like it was either someone who did subscribe to um, Judaism or someone trying to pervert Judaism and, you know, either place blame on that or it's like almost a perversion of mm -hmm. the faith. Um <laughs> You know, I, I think that could be a possibility. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just, it's really hard to say because it's, you know, depending on how he was moved, you know, because obviously he was moved to the floor and they said that he was dragged by his feet. There wasn't a lot of, like, description on, like, which way that he was placed. No, and I, I couldn't find that either. And so, like, you know, if he was placed towards the door... Or with his feet towards the door, that could be, you know, almost a sign of remorse. 
or if it or if he was placed towards or if his feet were placed towards the window i would almost consider that like an insult to the faith yeah so i mean i think that's you know i just think that's an interesting thing to kind of know so all that stuff that is all um all of that and then specifically about the window uh because this was the end of october the beginning of november in new york city or in new york which is Long Island, close to New York City. So again, we've all watched the Hallmark movies. Oh, it's um, a little chilly. Just yeah, a, bit. a little Just bit chilly. Bit. And then also, Chaim at the time was taking antibiotics for bronchitis. So Ooh, it's not... That's rough. Yeah. And antibiotics are also rough just in themselves. Mm-hmm. But it isn't very likely he would have opened the window himself. There was a fire escape on the building, but it was on the opposite side of the hallway as his room. Mm-hmm. And um, again, going back to, I mentioned that the building is really far from the buildings on either side and that the walls are like they're like really sheer like straight brick walls like there is probably not a lot of handholds no there is like none unless you consider like bricks <laughs> and again it is just flat brick like it's not yeah. like cobblestony brick yeah um so unless you were like fucking all might again <laughs> you pro or you had special equipment i really doubt anybody could have been able to make it in or out through that window mm-hmm. and whether they jumped out of the window that probably would have made a decent amount of noise even yeah. if they didn't get hurt <laughs> yeah so, these are all that stuff investigators then and now still believe the killer was part of the orthodox jewish community and maybe even part of the school uh they thought it was possible the killer had just done research on the customs kind of like what i've done here the internet uh, was only three years old at the time, so it wouldn't have been as easy. And even at that point, the research that I have done was tough. And I want to emphasize that because I didn't know at first, not being part of the community, I didn't know what to research at the time. Yeah. And I knew what I was looking for. Right. So the killer, I mean, if they were just looking it up, they would have just been looking for like stuff I can do to make it seem like <clears throat> I'm Jewish, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> Jewish death practice. Yeah. Question mark. Which like, again, and I've I've well, looked and Google that specific didn't, and Google didn't yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Google wasn't invented till what, nineteen ninety-eight? Because we're both older than Google. Oh god, yeah. Yeah. So Google did not exist at this point. And if they looked they were reading books or something. <clears throat> I mean Because I mean realistically theoretically a library would have a copy of the torah Mm -hmm. and they would be able to read that especially i would say that that's especially possible in long island where there was from what i've seen a pretty big uh orthodox jewish community yeah so i mean but even still it'd be something that you would have to do time and research in to do or just be a part of the community and know about those things and have already learned about Mm -hmm. them and it seems the more likely theory. Yeah. I think it is personally, to me at least, much more likely that the person was at least part of the community. Maybe they weren't practicing at the time. That's possible. But I think it would be tough to have done research yeah. on this stuff. And that's, I think that's basically what the investigators came to the conclusion of anyway. For what it's worth, um, <clears throat> Eli Kushner, who I mentioned did I mention him yet? Um, yeah, because he's the 
He's the door kid, right? No, he's not the door kid. He, uh, that was a different student. Eli Kushner, if I didn't mention him, uh, he was living at the dorm at the time. He was a student. He and Anton both seem to believe that it was somebody connected to the school. Mm. Anton has more implied it. Eli Kushner has straight up said it. Um, so unfortunately though, um, you know, Haim was, he was so popular. He was just such a good kid that nobody could think of anybody who would have considered him an enemy. Yeah. So that really didn't lead them anywhere. So the school in the community were obviously like heartbroken and totally shocked. And um, it's good to mention here that when I speak of the community, I am talking specifically about the Orthodox Jewish community because there was no like media coverage on this. It like most of the media covers that I found, like it was really brief mentions in newspapers at the time, or it was all very recent. Um, yeah, and everyone can kind of put two and two together there. Yeah. What happened with that? So when I say the community, I am specifically talking about the Orthodox Jewish community. They were, you know, they went into a customary mourning period, and a rabbi asked to leave a memorial candle burning in Haim's room. He was given permission, and then the room was sealed as a crime scene. Um, and I know I stated earlier that most observant Jewish people won't light candles or any fire on the Sabbath. And that's mm-hmm. actually, that's a pretty specific thing that is mentioned in the Mishnah. Not to light fire on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath. <laughs> um, but since this was a rabbi, I'm, it's probably safe to assume that there was a pretty good reason. And I really, honestly, I'm not Jewish again, but I doubt that anybody would condemn lighting a memorial candle in a murder teenager's room. Yeah. So, these memorial candles, this one that he lit, it was supposed to burn for seven days. Weirdly, though, two days after this first candle was placed in the room, a second memorial candle appeared, and no one would ever admit to placing it there. Mm-hmm. Investigators thought it was likely to be the murderer, but in my opinion, it's equally likely that it was one of Haim's friends who was just having a really hard time with his death, and then felt like they had done something wrong when the police were questioning who had put the candle there and didn't want to admit to it. Well, and you think about it, too, because that's specifically, so two days after the first candle was lit, it, so, because November 1st, that would have been Saturday, and so that would be Saturday. It would have been Monday. Monday. That it was placed, yeah. Right. So, that's out of the Sabbath, Mm -hmm. which would then, you know, not violate the Mishnah. Yeah. Did I say that right? Yes, I think so. (laughs) Cool. I'm not Jewish. (laughs) But, um. These were, like, really smart kids, and I'm sure that they would have known that the police thought it was the killer who had placed the candle there. But then they were also kids, you know? And They're I'm sure this... grieving their friend. Yeah. I'm sure this whole situation was, like, terrifying for them. Mm-hmm. Um, Detective Daly, in the interview I watched with him, he really did not seem to understand why somebody would have innocently placed the candle in there and then not came forward came about forward, it. yeah. Which I think could be a reason that one of the kids didn't come forward, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> there, we'll, we'll get into if someone's Detective not Daily. <laughs> as accepting of a faith from an outside viewpoint. And I think it was pretty obvious that he wasn't from the get-go. Yeah. So I think, you know, for kids, especially 14 to 18, trying to 
approach someone who's <clears throat> very clearly not not accepting of you and your faith. I mean, that's not to something that them. that was from the holy innocent. Yeah. But they would basically treat as an an admission of guilt. Mm -hmm. Which, in this case, it could be. But I also agree with you. I think it's incredibly likely that it was placed there by one of his friends. Yeah. And this is actually a very good example of the beginnings of the misunderstandings that occurred between the Orthodox Jewish community and the police. And of course, I think we mentioned... The internet had, was officially three years old at the time that this case existed. So I don't think it's very likely the police could have done research there. Um, but they had a whole community of people they could ask. From what I've read or seen, you know, there was a pretty big Orthodox Jewish community on Long Island at this point. Um, even if they didn't want somebody that was directly involved with the school or the specific community that Haim was a part of, I'm sure that they could have found somebody who wasn't that they could ask questions about, or they could have just checked out books, you know? Yeah. But I really don't think, it does not seem to me that they have done what I would personally consider adequate research. Yeah. I think the police at the time, since um, Anton is so much happier with them than he was about the previous investigators, I wouldn't be surprised if they've done a lot of research um, yeah. because of the immediate suspicion that the killer was someone at the school. Um, the police interviewed everybody at the school, which honestly they would have done anyway. <laughs> yeah. But remember the thing we talked about, about observant people not being able to write or erase two letters. Um, that meant that they could not write statements or even sign their names. And this mm. is where <laughs> you're going to get mad. <laughs> this oh, is where God. Detective Daly straight up said in the interview with um unsolved mysteries he straight up said that the kids were illiterate because they were orthodox jewish are you shitting me yeah <laughs> he straight what up said this fuck this oh my wasn't God. true I, <laughs> like and even in, well and these were incredibly intelligent kids yeah when even even in the unsolved mysteries episode they did reenactments where the kids were shown writing so i don't know what's going on there Hey, it is future editing Ollie dropping in just one more time while I was going through uh, my notes on this case one more time. I got worried that I had misunderstood Detective Daly's statement in the Unsolved Mysteries thing about this. Uh, his exact quote is, quote, initially we were dealing with a Saturday, which is the Sabbath. When we arrived at the scene sometime around 8 in the morning, it was difficult to talk to anybody at that particular time because the people we're dealing with, being Orthodox Jews, they're not able to write. We couldn't take statements from anybody, end quote. So I couldn't tell from that interview whether he actually believed that the kids couldn't write or read, but I know for a fact that a lot of the sources, when they quote him saying that, they are directly saying that the kids were illiterate using that quote so you know take that with a pinch of salt i don't actually know that the detective daily thought that but it is certainly a misconception that is started from that quote anyway i personally kind of feel like somebody just told him they couldn't write and, and he, he yeah completely misconstrued Ugh. they meant on the sabbath he thought they meant in general <laughs> 
Um, so this just, I don't know why he couldn't have taken verbal statements because obviously you have to sometimes, you have to interview people who can't write sometimes, you know, kids or people with arthritis. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know why he couldn't have taken statement, but it seems like he didn't take statements. Um, he also got, he said <laughs> that he got the impression that the students were a bit afraid to, to speak with him. Huh. I wonder why. <laughs> Who it's almost, knows? <laughs> wow, crazy. So he recalled specifically a meeting that he called um, where, with, you know, rabbis, students, and teachers, where all the questions he asked to a whole room <laughs> were on. met with silence. He held he held an entire meeting with all of them? I think it was all of them. I'm not totally certain. All but. of them at once. First of all, hello shoddy police work. <clears throat> First of all, you know, anyone who watches NCIS um, gives rule number one, never put suspects into a room together. If you think that the killer is on, <laughs> why would you ask them all at once? Who fucking knows? But obviously that didn't get him anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking nobody. Well, except crazy. him, apparently. So um, he said in an interview that he had heard or that he heard later that it's taboo to speak up or accuse anybody of anything unless you have proof or another witness. Eli Kushner, who was, um, I mentioned him earlier, who's a student at the time of Hyam's murder. He said they were told not to talk to anybody until after the Sabbath. Clearly, though, this investigation went on much longer than one day. So I honestly, I don't know how they could never have taken statements. Um, it is also worth mentioning, I have never, I, I've tried to look up this kind of stuff, you know? I tried to corroborate all this stuff. I couldn't, I didn't hear or see that it was taboo to speak up without a suspicion or wait, with a suspicion, unless you have evidence or another witness. I didn't hear that from any source besides sources that were directly quoting Detective Daly. So mm -hmm. I don't know that that's true. Yeah. <clears throat> that could very well be something that he came up with, too. Or that he misheard, because clearly he's very good at mishearing things. Yeah, obviously. So, um, they ended up polygraphing around 40 students, which is all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of rabbis and teachers. Again, Probably all of them. No other leads came from this. Um, the dean of the school at the time, who's called Rabbi Yerushom Pitter, <laughs> said the police hung around um, and kept an eye on the school for about a year after the murder. He, uh, His words were that they kind of camped out around the school for about a year, mm -hmm. a little over a year. <clears throat> so, again, how did he not see these kids leaving with their notebooks and books <laughs> and... <laughs> wonder about his whole illiteracy thing <sighs> uh, you know if i focus too much on that i'm gonna, I'm gonna get really pissed off so we're gonna move right yeah. along i mean Haim was reading like part of the statement is that he was reading he was literally the last reading. Time he <laughs> anyway <sighs> yeah so at first most of the students and staff at the school believed Haim's murder was an anti-semitic attack um, especially, apparently, the week of Halloween, a lot of students in previous years had been harassed by other kids in the neighborhood. Again, this was a pretty residential area yeah. that the school and the dorm were in. 
Um, it was bad enough that that year, many of the students chose not to wear their felt hats outside on Halloween because in previous years, they'd been grabbed. So mm. on the night of the murder, there were at least three incidents reported of students being harassed, but they weren't anything violent or obviously connected to the murder. It's more like being taunted and having eggs thrown at them, which is still shitty, but it's not murder. Yeah. Um, school staff corroborated that there were no serious or violent acts of anti-Semitism in the neighborhood. And investigators were able to rule out a hate crime as a motive. Um, coming into a likely locked dorm building, I'm pretty sure the front door of the building was locked. Um, climbing the stairs into the first or onto the third floor, murdering one of the only two students that had their own room, moving his body twice, opening a window, and then going back down to the first floor and leaving seems like a whole lot of work for a prank to me. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when so many sources say <laughs> that the dorm had a kind of confusing layout and you had to be familiar with it to get to Himes' room. Um, Eli Kushner is one of the people who stated that it has a confusing layout. He actually said you had to go through multiple rooms and I, I don't think he meant, like, different rooms of different students, but... Probably, like, yeah. you know, like a sitting room. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I can't think of any other type I know. of, like, lounge room. <laughs> so, um, that was another kind of tick in the box of probably somebody familiar with the school. Mm -hmm. So, there were a couple... Uh, suspects that were looked at right away. A janitor that left pretty quickly after the murder who worked at the school. Um, then a drifter in the area. Both of them, I think, were ruled out. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were both ruled out. I know the janitor was. Not totally sure about the drifter. The biggest thing that police have is that a jogger saw a young man he thought could have been a yeshiva student a few blocks from the school at about 7 a.m. on November 1st, the day the body was discovered. The boy was sitting on a boardwalk looking out at the ocean. This was before Heim's body was discovered, but also before students were allowed to leave the dorm. Mm. This potential student has never been identified or named as a suspect, but investigators would really like to speak to him. Obviously. Yeah. In 2013, the case was officially reopened with new investigators, which Anton seems much happier with mm -hmm. uh he was apparently a bit unsatisfied with the original investigators which i would be too <clears throat> understandably yeah um and anton made a statement at the press conference where this was announced that he hoped that now that the students who are at the school were old enough to have their own families and children's that they understand the pain him and his family feel and will come forward with any new leads yeah. One can only hope. After the case was reopened, a couple pretty significant things come up. Um, there was a suicide at the dorm at some time before Haim was even a student. It really doesn't seem to have anything to do with the case, but I thought it would be worth bringing up. Um, I've also seen that another Yeshiva student was reported that he was physically abused by a teacher between 1976 and 1977, almost a decade before Haim was murdered. Um, but he blamed Principal Rabbi Avram Cooper, who was still at the school at the time of Haim's murder, for allowing the abuse to continue. I uh, couldn't find the original source for this, though, so take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. <laughs> I was just hearing the source <laughs> quoted. Yeah. Um, another really big thing is that Anton Weiss is actually 
seeming to now have a lot of suspicion towards the people connected to the school. He's really suspicious currently about why Haim was placed in a room alone. Um, he doesn't seem to understand why, which is really sketchy to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's... Mm. Mm -hmm. This is where we get into a bit of the potential not corroborated sexual assault. Um, he, Anton, I mean, um, he is suspicious about this specific time in July of 1986, again, the same year Haim was murdered. Haim was at a summer camp where he had never had issues or reported problems before. He called his father um, while he was on vacation, crying and insisting he wanted to leave, but didn't tell him why. When Anton came back and went to visit him, Haim said everything was fine. Mm -hmm. um, Anton said everything seemed fine. The <sighs> same year, in August of... 1986. Haim was in Europe to visit his grandparents when Rabbi Avram Cooper, again the principal, um, called Anton and asked when Haim would be back, which is really weird to me. And I mean, this is a school of 40 students. Maybe it's less weird, but it's weird to me. Anton told him it would be a couple of weeks, and then a week later, Cooper called and asked the same question. Okay, that's <laughs> yeah. incredibly suspicious. So I mm, yeah, I don't like that because he I mean, seemed <laughs> I mean uh, at the time, I don't think there was there were any red flags, obviously, there were no red flags raised in Anton or his wife's minds because I mean, this is a well, okay, a religious, so this is in the eighties, I mean. But this is a religious figure that they want to have faith in. Yeah. Who's a big figure in Heim's school. Right. I mean, okay. I'll let, I would I'll, be super I'll sketched out, but. I'll let you yeah. finish. I'll let you finish. So because he seemed to want so badly to speak to Haim, his parents actually arranged a meeting at the rabbi's home when Haim came back. Uh, um, even sketchier. I would not have, I would not have put up with this as a parent, but. That's today. <laughs> um, the rabbi told them to wait, told his parents, I mean, to wait in the car and send Haim in alone. Absolutely not. Yeah. No. I At least. I, yeah. I just, you know, just on the off chance that this ever happens. Don't do this. I but... am not blaming Anton or, no, or his, his wife. wife. Like, not this at all. This wasn't commonplace at the time. This was somebody that they trusted, obviously. However... I don't see that in today's world there there really shouldn't be very many like what's the reason ever, for that one on one conversations like he was 15 with your child like the kid was 15 what are they talking about with his principal not even like one of his teachers it just like it, <clears throat> obviously hindsight is 2020 however yeah. i just from like i don't blame like this is not no, at all this is just not. in hindsight this is incredibly fucking sketchy in hindsight especially and what we know about the world today i would highly recommend not especially one-on-one -on -one conversations happen with it any special yeah. attention given to your child by an adult figure in their life maybe, maybe take a closer look out. maybe take a closer look. additionally there's some stuff that um cooper did after Haim's death that is sketchy. But anyway, we'll get into that in a okay. second. 
so Haim spent 10 minutes alone in Cooper's home and then he came back and he didn't really want to talk about the conversation. Red um, flag. Yeah. Anton, he seemed like a really good dad, honestly. He he seems um, like a very loving father, yeah. very attentive. He didn't want to press him on it. He didn't want to put him under a lot of pressure. So he just mm-hmm. kind of left it. Um, and in hindsight, he says that he wishes he had pressed time about it, which is heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, another thing about Rabbi Cooper is that when the Weiss family sued the school after the murder for failing to keep Haim safe, which is fair. <laughs> um, Understandable. Absolutely. Yeah. Rabbi... Cooper apparently told Anton in court that he should reflect on misdeeds he's committed and why this might have happened to him. I'm sorry. What? He was telling a grieving father that his son's murder was his fault. Anton, wow. rightfully so, is still mad about this. Uh, understandably. Yeah. Um, no, if, uh, no, actually, you know what? Full offense, Rabbi Cooper. Uh, Fuck you. Uh, you should never be involved catch these in this fucking school. hands if you're alive. Yeah, he. I think he is still Fuck alive. He's off, no longer involved dude. in the school. He retired though. He didn't was not fired or anything. The school. No. I don't think any of Hyam's littler siblings. One of them was a boy, so he could have gone. I'm fairly certain he was not sent to the school. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I can, I can see how that might be. Uh, yeah. you know, why they wouldn't want to do that. So, um. In the uh, 1992 Unsolved Mysteries episode, Anton was also uh, interviewed, and I did want to read this exact quote. He said, certain things I can accept. My son is dead, but the murder is still loose. All these unanswered questions make me very uneasy. He said his heart weeps for Haim and that his soul cannot rest until he has justice. Um, My heart just really breaks for them. Um, I really get the feeling that he doesn't like the attention, that he doesn't want to do all these interviews, but he feels like he needs to for Haim. Um, And I just really hope someday that this case is solved and he gets to stop and just live his life knowing that Haim is at rest. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't even imagine the pain that he and his family is in, but also the amount of strength that he has as a, as a parent, as a father, Mm -hmm to step out into the world every day and and to have your life put on display yeah when that is not something he ever wanted no you know you know and so to have to have the grace to try and and no matter the situation you no matter no matter what try and find justice for his son's killer. I think it takes a very special kind of person. And I'm sorry that he had to be put in that yeah, situation. I'm sorry he had to be that person. <laughs> yeah. So when the case was reopened, the reward for information leading to an arrest was raised to $25,000. I don't know what it was at before. Um, it was a cold case before. So I actually don't really know if there was a reward. Um, but it they said in the press conference that it was raised. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, it probably was like only 5k or something like yeah. that. Um, there's a Nassau County crime stoppers hotline at 1-800-244-TIPS, which would be 1-800-244-8477. That link will be in our description as well. Yes, it will. 
Um, <clears throat> that's for any information regarding the case. You can also reach the Nassau County Homicide Squad at 516-573-7788. You are asked to reference case number CSU-7313 when making a tip, um, but it's really more important that you call and make a tip. If you have one, then to remember <laughs> that case number, um, I'm sure that they're going to know who you're talking about if you just call. I've never called in a tip before, but I did actually look at what's involved in relaying tips through the Nassau County Crime Stoppers website. It literally like doesn't even ask for any of your information. Like it doesn't ask. <laughs> I like, it's not just not required. There is not a box for it. Hmm. So you like, it's completely, completely um, anonymous. They Crime Stoppers makes it a priority to make their tips as anonymous as possible so that people aren't discouraged from understandably yeah um nassau county.crimestoppersweb.com is where you can go for any of those tips again that'll be linked um in the description and stuff um and if you have even an inkling of a suspicion investigators and Hyma's family are both asking you to come forward little tips are everything in cases like this yeah. the smallest detail can make or break a case yeah. In this case, for me, the Heimweiss case is one of those cases that's like, for me, right up there with John Bonet Ramsey on my list of cases I'd like to see solved in my lifetime. Obviously, preferably, I'd really like to see it solved in his family's lifetime. Yeah. Um, if not for Haim, then for his family, who are not resting easy right now. My heart really goes out to them. Um, and I doubt that they're listening. But if they are, you can reach out to us for anything you might need. A shout out, a direction to a GoFundMe, like absolutely anything an ear, whatever. This is such a devastating case. And I really, I'm not really sure why it hit me so hard. Like my mom is from Long Island. Um, and I'm pretty sure she would have been in college at the time, but I'm pretty sure my grandparents were living in Long Island at the time. Um, so maybe there's a bit of a connection there, but I just like, this case hits me really hard and I don't know why. And I'd really like to see it solved. Um, and his soul and his family at rest. Absolutely. I it's life ending so young is never never an okay thing. But if if there's anything that can be done to give this family peace. some peace, some closure, mm -hmm. then that's that's the important thing. Yep, I'll go as far as I need for that. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been the case of Hyam Weiss, an unsolved murder of a 15-year-old boy in 1986 in Long Island, New York. This is Wild Mystery Podcast appears. I'm Ollie. And I'm Belle. You can go to our website at awmpa.com to get all of our social media and find our other episodes. We hope that you found this episode interesting and enlightening, and we'll talk to you next Thursday.